a lot more. You're looking at me now. Um, no, yeah. So I did the uh, the Yearling internship last year. I did the media internship with Jack. Um, yeah, it was super cool. Media, photography, like videography, was something I'd always kind of been interested in, but never had like the means to do it. So getting to use like the church's gear to like fulfill that. I mean, got to got to shoot at like church events and also like young life events, and it was super cool. Um, got to like learn from from Jack. Got to learn like what he learned in school, how to like composition and all that. That was that was super cool and like it was cool at the end to kind of like see my growth with taking pictures and whatnot. Um, yeah, that was super fun, but I think the bigger part of it was we got to go through the book The Cure, Jack and I and Alex, and that was probably the, the more life-giving part because um, I learned a lot. I learned I kind of had this false depiction of God. I always kind of viewed him as like, stern face, arms crossed, looking at me like he was disappointed in me. But reading The Cure, I realized that's just not the case. And I was like bearing a lot of shame that I didn't need to be bearing. And so that that book kind of set me free um, of that. So that was really awesome. And then, yeah, meeting with, with Ashley and Justin was super cool because as a group of interns, we went to the book of Genesis, which had always just kind of been like, Oh, yep, made it through Genesis. Yep, that's good. Um, just kept moving, but it's cool to actually sit down and break it down and like go through it and like see all the connections to, to elsewhere in the Bible. Um, so yeah, that was really cool. Um, but yeah, that's kind of what it was for me. I mean, Jack, I also got to build a great friendship with Jack, and now that's he's kind of been a mentor and someone I look up to, and it's taught me a lot about myself. Um, yeah, so it was, it was a great great use of my year here is summer thank you um like justin said and matt said i'm summer um and i serve as the year-long college intern uh for missouri western for young life i get to work with um dave and karen hine and stephanie and bill burr and many others uh, i also get to work with its wearings which has been really fun um justin has asked us a few questions about like what we've learned in and like Justin mentioned that we meet on Fridays for like an hour, and that time is serious, and it's, there's a lot of tears, if I'm being honest, right? There's been some hard conversations, but really good ones. Um, the question he asked us was, would we set goals for ourselves? So the first day when we arrived, we set goals. Um, sometimes I don't want to admit that I'm a people pleaser, but in truth, I really am. Um, I constantly strive to please people, especially with my friendships. I want everyone to make sure that their needs are met um, before my own, which leads me to taking on too much. Um, and the feeling of the pressure of never being enough for someone. Um, and like I said, the first day we set goals. And my goal was to set boundaries with my friendships. Some of those boundaries included stepping a few, taking a few steps back from friendships that were tearing me emotionally and making me feel that I wasn't enough for them. Another boundary that I set was saying no and not feeling guilty for saying no. It's extremely hard for me to say no because I want to be doing everything and anything and just staying busy constantly. And reality, that can really drain someone. Those boundaries played a critical role in my semester of college this year, and I found the importance of setting boundaries. The boundaries allowed 
Boundaries allow us to share time and energy in a sustainable way and maintain healthy friendships. Boundaries allow us not to be used on or walked on. And setting boundaries allow us to take a deeper look into ourselves and what we want our relationships to look, at, look like. And so that was some of the few things that I learned just by one meeting. He asked us to share our goals with uh, some of our mentors um, to achieve those goals. Because, one, we started off with writing them out. Justin wrote them out on a note. And so usually he would ask us, what, what, how did we progress the next week? Um, and some people we would forget but if we took time to ask one of our mentors or a friend to hold us accountable, those goals were more likely to be succeeded. And I will say setting that goal for myself was huge, and it was extremely uncomfortable because I, I like to say yes. Like, let's keep doing things. And, like, I enjoy friendships, but sometimes those friendships can be unhealthy. Um, so I really appreciate everyone that invests in the year-long internship. I know I've had several friends that have been in the year-long internship and the summer internship, but it is really, really amazing to see uh, what type of growth we go through, but to see a community of people that just surround themselves with love and surround us with love, it's incredible. So I just want to say thank you guys. Just out of curiosity, um, if you've been uh, a summer or year-long intern at any point uh, over the years, could you just stand real quick so we can just get a, an eye on how many folks have been in that program through the years? So, yes, let's just give them a round of applause. <clears throat> so, uh, you know that obviously investing in the younger generation is super important to us, but there's... Um, you know, being intentional about that is, is really important to us as well. Um, not only are we gaining, when you think about even this year, you know, four people times 10 hours, it's 40 additional man hours on the ground, like forwarding the mission of Wellspring and who we're called to be. Um, you know, for instance, in the media, you know, if Jack has a, a helper or two, they can get out at a lot more events, um, get those recorded, you know, pictures, things like that to... Um, just so that people can enjoy uh, seeing the, the impact of those things. But I think more than anything else, like Summer was sharing, well, really both of them shared the day, is just the, um, the impact on their hearts, you know, and the, and the change that is brought about um, by being an intentional a community and relationship with, with mentors that are investing in them. So um, thank you guys for sharing about that um, today. Um, it's kind of funny that uh, um, our topic for today with Advent is peace, because um, the title of my message is The Threat of Jesus. So uh, you'll have to hang in there with me, figure out how we all, we tied this all together. So as we talked about last week, um, Advent is a season of preparation. Okay, as we're waiting uh, again to celebrate um, the coming of our Savior and then receiving Him, preparing room in our hearts to receive Him. But which Jesus are we making room for? That's the kind of question we, we threw out a little bit. Is it, is it the Jesus of, uh, that we want and the way we want him to be or Jesus as he truly is? So this series I shared last week is based off of a conversation that Jesus was having with some of the, the Jewish religious leaders. It's recorded in John chapter 8. And, and Jesus just says to them, he says, you're looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. 
So most people in Jesus's time wanted this Messiah, this Savior that was going to be kind of a revolutionary military leader like King David had been in the Old Testament, right? Someone who would come and overthrow Rome and return the nation of Israel to the Jewish people. They weren't really on board, uh, as we talked about last week, with the vulnerable Savior who arrived on the scene kind of under the radar in Bethlehem. And they rejected this this version of a king that would allow himself to be physically and emotionally wounded by the Jewish leadership and by the authorities of the Roman Empire. They hadn't been waiting all this time for that Jesus. But Christ understood that his kingdom was not of this world. If you remember the famous scene at the end of his life where he's talking with the Roman governor Pilate and, and he says those exact words to him, my kingdom is not of this world, right? He had a bigger vision than simply changing our, our current earthly circumstances. He was, he was coming for our hearts, and he was more concerned about our eternal destinies. And not only was Jesus vulnerable and needy and dependent, but he was also a threat on many levels. And we see just how big of a threat Jesus was from the very earliest stages of his life. His very presence had earthly authorities rattled. So I want you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2 this morning. It's page 1374, 1374, Matthew 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3 to start with. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. So we need to understand some things about King Herod. So King Herod was appointed by Rome um, to rule over the area of Judea, which if you think about the nation of Israel, it would be kind of the southern half of, of what's present day Israel. And it would have included the cities of Jerusalem and then this little suburb hamlet called Bethlehem. So he would have been king over that area. And so he was a ruthless, tyrannical leader, uh, you know, according to history, he exerted his authority through fear and intimidation. Um, it says that he killed, he killed his wife. He killed several of his own children who he thought might have been a threat to his throne. So this guy was no joy to be around. Um, and now these magi or, or wise men from the east are coming to him and saying that this king of the Jews has been born. And that's the title that Caesar gave him. Caesar said, Herod, you're the king of the Jews. And so this isn't going to go well, right? There can only be one king. To say that he was disturbed was putting it lightly. He was furious. So let's see what he does here, starting in verse 4. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. So he gets the Jewish religious leaders together and says, tell me about the prophecies about the Messiah. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. And he, and he quotes Micah chapter 5. He says, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. 
for out of you will come a ruler who will be who will shepherd my people Israel. So that's why if you've heard this phrase Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, that's where that comes from. Then Herod called the magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, "Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him." After they heard the king, they went on their way and the star that had had they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was when they saw the star they were overjoyed on coming to the house okay so hopefully you guys are putting all this together and some of you guys have heard this like the magi weren't there the night jesus was born so when you see the nativity scenes and you see the three wise men that's really like poor history <laughs> okay this was like later all right he's, a, he's he's probably one and a half two years old okay when they got to the house because we know it wasn't born in the house <laughs> They saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up and took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. So from the age of two, roughly, all the way up to the cross, we'll see that Jesus' title and his authority were a threat to many. His life was in constant pursuit by his adversaries. Many were plotting to kill him. So that's why, you know, when you see just paintings of Jesus, like with sheep around his shoulder, you know, with the well, you know, hair, what is that, blow-dried hair, you know? looking all just tender and sweet, um, or even that he's just this good moral teacher. Like, that is just such a disservice to his power and authority of who he was. In Matthew ten thirty four, Jesus reminds everyone. He says, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. So it's really interesting when we're talking about peace, right? He's called the Prince of Peace, but he's not talking about the same kind of peace that we usually tend to throw around that phrase, which means that our earthly circumstances are going pretty well in life. He's talking about a much deeper peace, an eternal peace, a soul peace. And he says that he's come to bring a sword to kind of differentiate between that earthly peace and that eternal peace and, and show the separation between those two. The baby born to Mary was a threat to the established order in society at that time and everybody who benefited from it, which if you've heard of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they got their power and authority by being in cahoots with Rome. Rome basically said, if you can keep the Jewish people under control, then we'll let you have some authority and, and some position and, and, uh, in your, and some you know, financial resources, all those things will kind of pay you and set you up to subdue the Jewish people for us. So there was a lot for them. 
this threat of Jesus' presence was a huge threat to those who benefited from Rome's authority. I love this quote by Bishop James Johnson, Jr. It says, Jesus should threaten us, and if he does not, then we have not taken him seriously. He should threaten our pride and the many ways we seek to serve ourselves, to compromise the truth, to play God. In other words, when Jesus says right out of the gate, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel, he is laying down a challenge that offers no middle ground. Just leave that up there for a second. This was one of those quotes um, that, that I, I kind of say is kind of like, you know, if I'm reading something in a book, like I got to put the book down and like kind of walk around for a little bit and just be like, hmm, wow, okay. This was one of those kind of slap in the face type quotes that I came across this week. Um, it was a great article. Um, what are your just thoughts? What, what jumps out to you? What struck you as you read that? Yeah, he, so he just likes the language of just communicating about, yeah, just the lack of a, an in-between space. <laughs> You're either for God or not, right? And there's, there's no other way through. Good. What else? Yeah, yeah, you have to do something with it. You can't be indifferent about the message, right? Anything else? Good. Yeah. Yeah. So he said, at least, at least the religious leaders in, in the New Testament scripture understood the threat that Jesus was. <laughs> like they got that right, right? There might have been some crowds that were kind of a little bit indifferent or, you know, but the people that had something to lose, he was a threat for sure. Jesus should threaten us. So what does that mean? Well, in our, in our own life, I think we see his, his lordship as a threat to our autonomy, right? Our self-rule. We want to call our own shots, make our own rules in life, primarily that don't require us to change very much, okay? We want to be able to gossip when it feels good. We want to be uh, able to judge, mock others so we can elevate our own status, boost our own self-esteem through putting other people down. 
We want to play by our own sexual rules and relationships. We want to be able to spend our money on what we want to, just to name a few things. But Jesus' teaching, teachings challenge all of those things. Having things our way seems a whole lot easier than being obedient to his teachings. But Jesus brings a sword, and he alleviates this kind of wishy-washy, lukewarm middle ground of faith when he says things like this. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Or you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for them. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Or if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, they cannot be my disciple. And it seems that there are kind of three possible responses to those challenges or those threatening commands. One response is to try to silence or eliminate Jesus, which is the response that a lot of people in Jesus' time took, at least this segment, right? Just get rid of him, shut him up. When he calls us to a different lifestyle or challenges our desire for comfort in this life, we can always just ignore him. Pretend like he doesn't exist or doesn't have the authority to tell us what to do. The fact that we're all here this morning tells me that there's at least some desire in your heart to try to be obedient, to try to follow him. So our second option is probably a more common response, which is, which is to try to tame Jesus. To try to take a little bit off of the radical edge of his commands. And one way we do that is by having what I call kind of a cafeteria-style approach to Christianity. So if you think about Jesus with his, his lunch lady hairnet on, right at the buffet of his commands, and you've got your tray, and you're going down the line, you know, and he's got all these different things, commands that he has for you in your life, and he's got his little scooper, you know, plopping a little whatever it might be, you know, on your plate. We can all get, we, we all become picky eaters at that table, right? I'll take a little bit of that. You know, I can handle that, that, that command. Ooh, this one, ah, you know, too salty. You know, too many calories. I think I'm going to pass on that one, right? It's kind of this build your own Christianity. You know, I think restaurants at some point kind of figured out there's enough picky people in the world now that they created the build your own little part on the menu, you know what I mean? For you people that can't pick a number one or a number two, you know, what do you want? Just break it down for us, all right? And we kind of do that with our approach to Christianity as well. All of us do at some level. We pick and choose which commands seem tolerable and which ones are a little too hard for us to swallow. And we do a great job of justifying why we can, why we can pick and choose those things. So that's another option. Our third option, though, when faced with Jesus' commands is we can open ourselves to him in humility and allow him to transform us by his grace, including those areas that we know are going to be a battle for us to embrace. And this openness allows Jesus to come in and rightfully threaten those idols that interfere with his lordship in our lives. 
idols of pride, of selfishness and comfort. Jesus is a threat, and that's a good thing. Why? Why is it a good thing that he's a threat? Let's get somebody else. I saw your hand. You're on it. Let's see. Anybody else? Yeah, Nick. Because we can't stay the same? Okay. Because he pushes us to change. Okay. Good. Why else is it good that he's a threat? Oh, yes. Sorry, Will. God, that's good. Will Pullman. He said what he's really threatening is our false self and not, not our true self, not, not our heart of hearts of who we really want to be or who we were created to be. So his threat is to our false self, right? Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Yeah, I don't even know how I can resum that up. <laughs> Trying to resum up Matt Matt's uh, comments, but basically just talking about you know we're born into this kingdom of darkness, right? The kingdom of the enemy. That's who we as when we when we were born. We've at some point we we make a um, you know a rational decision to follow and to align ourselves with the enemy. Um, and so when Jesus comes and he's bringing in this new kingdom, it's it's loving for him. To, to tear the, us away from those things, um, which are not good for us. I, I'm wondering just if you would have any examples. Do you have any examples where God has cast you from the throne in specific areas of your life, areas that you used to want to control, but have now surrendered to his lordship? Areas that you used to want to control, but you've now surrendered to his lordship. Can you think of any areas, examples of that in your own life? Yeah. 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 Okay, so in ministry, saying just sifting through our motives, right? That our motives on the surface. It might look good, the things I'm doing, but I, but I know in my heart that what I really want is glory for me. And so surrendering that and allowing him to be Lord of that and to get the glory for the things, yeah, that's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what was at the root of that? Like, seems to me like maybe just kind of a lack of trust yeah. in yeah. God's. I would say so. Yeah. yeah. I just felt so 
Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I think whatever it is in our lives, um, we all have this picture, this idea of what's going to bring us happiness, right? And we, and we pursue that and we put happiness on the throne, right? And we'll do anything uh, to get what it is we think is going to make us happy, content, whatever word you want to fill in the blank with. Um, and, and when we trust, we have a difficult time trusting is God's way going to do the same thing? Because it doesn't always feel the same in, in the day in and day out, honoring him or being obedient to him doesn't always feel good, right? That cute little baby in the manger came to flip some tables in our life, in our hearts. Do we have room for the Savior who wants to expose and destroy the idols that we've placed on the throne of our hearts? He's a threat, all right but only to the level that we doubt his goodness. Okay, I want you to hear that again. He's a threat only to the level at which we doubt his goodness. When I'm not sure about his goodness, the things that he's asking me to do feel a lot more threatening. But when I've surrendered to this understanding that even when he asks me to do hard things, it's for my good, and it doesn't feel quite so threatening anymore. It feels like care. It feels like fathering, a good father, right? He desires for us to flourish. Look at his heart for us in John 8, 31 and 32. Jesus says, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You see, he understands that the things in this world that we tend to chase after that are not him will not satisfy us. And so he's trying to spare us the slavery that that path puts us back into, the bondage, so that we can really be free. I love the way C.S. Lewis describes our threatening savior in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, right? It's this conversation between Mr. Beaver and Susan says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. The baby in the manger isn't safe but he's good and he's coming for our hearts to rescue us from our destructive self-rule. So will we make room to receive him? The invitation is to open our hearts and surrender to his lordship this Advent season. What needs to be surrendered to make space for him? And, and I thought about it like this, like our hearts are full of something. It's kind of like the whole idea of worship, like we were created to worship and we're worshiping something. Every person in this world, because that's how we were created to be as humans. But is it Christ, right? So right now, every one of us, our hearts are full of something. Is it Jesus? 
Is it his lordship? And so if you think about this idea of, you know, we have limited space in our house, right? And, and so this idea of like, we can't keep moving in more couches <laughs> into our, in this one living room, right? In order to prepare room for him to really receive him as he is, what needs to move out so that Jesus can move something in, something better than what we've been settling for? So maybe that's a question that you can just kind of wrestle with a little bit. Does something need to be moved out so that Jesus can move in? Just a, just a word about communion, because this would be a normal communion week for us. Um, in the past, we've, we've kind of taken this practice of, of not doing communion during Advent. With Advent being a, a season of kind of waiting and longing for a Savior, um, the, the, what we want to kind of capture here is this sense of, of missing something, of longing for something. That, that maybe at the end of this Advent season we were able to celebrate again, um, that communion will take on uh, just renewed significance to us. So we're going to skip that here the next uh, couple of, of weeks that we normally would in December and wait till January 1st, um, a new year. Um, so let's pray.